Molly and I are so excited to participate in our installation on Friday in Greatbrook Valley, June 4th, starting at 7.45 p.m. There will be an amazing laser show accompanied by a sound cloud that was created by a number of Worcester Public School students. Um, the mayor is coming, and we'll be there giving away some free t-shirts. We'll have 25 free t-shirts for the first people to visit our table. They were created as a brand new design for 100 Acre Designs Glass Ceiling Series. So we hope to see you on Friday. We'll also have some, some treats to give away from the egg roll lady herself. And yeah, we'll be there 180 Constitution Way. Look for the two girls with the microphones. As always, this opportunity and our podcast was made possible by the Worcester Arts Council. WAC is also a proud sponsor of the event on Friday, which is called Not Alone. And that will be Pow Wow Worcester's very first event of the summer. Really exciting in collaboration with Harbor Voices, Worcester Housing Authority, and the Shine Initiative. I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Um, today we are joined by Shara Conroy, and I'm hoping that she can tell us a bit about her background in education, because as Molly and I continuously mentioned, we are both public school educators, and that's a huge part of our lens on pop culture and everything else. Hi guys, um, it's so nice to be here. I love education too. Uh, so my history in education, I graduated actually from Holy Cross in 2007. Yeah, go Crusaders. Um, And I joined Teach for America. Um, So I was sent to a very large urban middle school in Houston, Texas. Um, I taught there for three years. I taught sixth and eighth grade English and reading and ESL and all the things having to do with literacy. I got my master's from a school called St. Thomas down there and decided to move back towards home. Um, So after three years, I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, um, and I helped found a charter school in Central Falls, Rhode Island, uh, which is one square mile. And at that time, Central Falls had been taken over by the state um, just for poor attendance rates, graduation rates, all sorts of things. Um, So we were really looking to open a school to serve the kids in Central Falls. Um, It was actually a really interesting experience. We had 100 fifth graders our first year and they came from four communities. Um, It was an intentional urban suburban mix. Um, So 60% of our kids were coming from low income homes and 40% were coming from middle and upper income uh, level homes, which was really interesting. We were also intentionally diverse. So our population was 40% Hispanic, 40% white and 20% black, um, which is a very interesting thing to have that combination with uh, fifth graders. Um, It's really exciting. So after that, I moved to a different charter school in Boston called Match, uh, and I taught sixth grade English there for two years. I got involved in their teacher residency program. Um, I coached their rookie teachers who were getting their their graduate degree, um, which was really fun and interesting and always good to see other people's classrooms, Um, even if you are more experienced. It's just really um, eye-opening. 
And then from there, I was offered an administrative role in Lawrence. Um, Lawrence was going through state receivership, mm -hmm. and the school that I was offered the role at was um, one of the two schools in the district that was slated for immediate turnaround. Um, so I worked for five years as a Dean of Curriculum and Instruction at the school called Spark Academy. Um, and we were just doing turnaround in a urban public school district, which was a whole different experience for me as well. Um, and then I had my first kid and I took a year off and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so now I work for Schoolhouse, which is a network of micro schools throughout the country. I spent the past year in Brookline with six fifth graders um, in a storefront doing fifth grade things, which was really awesome. It sounds like you've been really heavily involved in working with high need students. Um, so my perception, I get this email from, I don't know, your PR agent or whoever saying like, our hometown hero, this excellent teacher. And I was like, the schoolhouse model, I've been reading a lot about that in the New York Times, right? And it talks about how it's creating a more segregated school system in a lot of these high needs communities. And that sounds like a lot different than what it seems your philosophy on education might be. So if you could explain the schoolhouse model and explain to us some of the benefits of that model, and then maybe we can dig a little bit deeper to talk about the future of that model. Yeah, um, and I think that's a super valid question and something, particularly when I started with schoolhouse, I um, really had to reconcile my 15 years in urban education uh, with this small pod model that seemed to serve kids whose parents could swing it, right? Uh, it is very different. Um, so the schoolhouse model is a micro school model. Um, basically parents who for whatever reason don't feel like their public school is necessarily serving their child, uh, find other like-minded parents and they form a micro school and so for example my pod found each other and then found schoolhouse but schoolhouse can also help connect parents with teachers um, so my parents decided that they wanted their kids to be in a pod together in a micro school together uh, because they didn't think that their child would be served on zoom um, mm -hmm. which I think as educators, we all sort of face that in one way or the other over the past year and a half. Um, and then Schoolhouse helped them find me. Uh, and we basically work on differentiating instruction to wherever the students are and whatever they need. Um, my pod, for example, had one student with special needs who could not sit in front of a computer and not navigate to other pages, which I'm sure you guys have a lot of yeah. kids who are clicking around and what can you do? What um, are we doing? <laughs> where are we? What website? Yeah. Um, so I was there with him to make sure that he wasn't on screens, that we were doing more of the traditional in-person instruction. I had another student who spent time in um, schools abroad. So he spent time in German schools and Korean schools, notably. And so in Korea, he had already done a lot of the math content. So fifth grade math for him was very easy and not very challenging. Um, and so I was able to do the seventh grade curriculum with him because that was more where he needed to be. 
while my other kids were working on the fifth grade curriculum. So I mean, as educators, we know that a smaller class means more individualized instruction. Um, and that is probably one of the biggest benefits of Schoolhouse. The other one is that I had very deep relationships with the families. Um, we communicated every day because there were six of them and their parents dropped them off, picked them up every day. It was not a big deal to have to make parent phone calls because there were only six phone calls to make. Um, my parents felt very comfortable texting me, updating me on personal things that were going on with the kids, on things that they weren't sure about for school, um, which for me was a huge difference than working in a public school where my first year teaching, I had 150 students. Um, like those numbers are, you just can't reconcile yeah. them. Um, so Molly has 600. <laughs> At different times. Yeah, yeah, they're scattered. <laughs> but like, she does cohorts, but I still, you know every kid's name. It's remarkable. Most of them. It's really amazing. So <laughs> my brain just, um, it just makes room for other information. Like, it just like makes like, <laughs> <laughs> makes other things smaller and it's just like yeah nothing leaves but i have is. A, about a so hundred and that's yeah it's yeah. just to be able to get to know kids particularly when a lot of the year was on zoom it's a challenge um and in many ways i think it sounds pretty idyllic to like have six kids in front of me all year long and build these deep relationships it was like the best thing to come out of a really horrible year um so it was great and I think the question about sort of reconciling, you know, a reform-minded serving urban population, like high needs kids, and then this model is that this could be what's next in education, right? Like right now we need a model, like an incubator model to see if it works. But Shara, I saw the price tag. These kids are paying $11,000 a semester. That's a lot of money. I think it varies. I'm not sure that my, my kids actually paid $11,000, but the idea is that if we can prove that this works, mm -hmm. then we can figure out where to get the money to serve the kids who really need it. Right. To create a space within the public school system to integrate the, like that ability, the ability to have that many kids in front of you. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is right now, right? Like it's not anywhere in anyone's view line. right to have what is it like six to eight kids yeah yeah and it's really interesting because i worked in lawrence which is what's called a portfolio district so basically my school got to manage the budget and i worked in administration so i saw how the money was spent and i i think that there is this conception that or misconception that teachers in schools that are not doing as well as other schools aren't working as hard and in my experience that's just the complete opposite, right? Um, but it's more about like, how do we spend our money to support teachers in a way that matters? And part of it is also that there's just not enough money right now, <laughs> uh, right? Like when you have to choose between books and another teaching assistant, those are choices that happen all the time. Um, and I think Schoolhouse's model sort of takes away a lot of the big money sucks, right? Like administration <laughs> it takes away like buildings right like, you don't have to the school i worked in lawrence had a thousand kids you don't have to maintain a building for a thousand kids right um the upkeep so, is like 
sorry the upkeep just is like such a yeah high cost just facilities yeah. facilities how many of these micro schools exist through your organization i am not 100 percent sure on the number i think it's around 50 <laughs> do not quote me like scattered about <laughs> so in new england there are only a couple i think i only know of two um from schoolhouse but in new york there are many more they have uh, other schools in california and uh, i know there's some in baltimore so it's just spread out a little bit more um, but obviously pod learning has become like a thing um during the past year for parents who are able to do it and i think that that's an excellent point it's having the resources having the understanding of how to get a pod together how to find somebody to lead a pod whether it's a teacher or you know a nanny or a college student um, who has the ability to lead kids in learning um, which i think is another thing that we don't necessarily think about it's not just about the money it's about the like ability to navigate the system sure you mentioned that um, or actually rather you mentioned like your credentials obviously are pretty hefty, right? Whereas like, is there any oversight? I'm sure it varies state by state, right? In Massachusetts, like what kind of oversight does a program like Schoolhouse face? Yeah. So I think it, I can only speak to my pod. I think it's different in different states. You're right. Um, so what I did was my kids were unenrolled from Brooklyn public schools. Um, and then enrolled as homeschooled uh -huh. students and so we know that pretty much anyone can homeschool their kid um, and then i wrote a proposal to the district that had to be approved just like any other homeschool plan yeah um, and that was accompanied with what my certifications were what my licenses were um, and my kids i have a standards-based report card that i submit to brookline and a portfolio for each kid which i also think will serve them next year as they go back into school um to just have like a record of what they've done right as opposed to just being like i'm here yeah. right like because i which i do think and i think massachusetts does just as a state have much more stringent yeah homeschooling regulations but like i imagine that there must be situations in other states where the oversight is so much more minimal where like do students go back to school and the schools and the like the administrators or teachers are like there you know we'll move them on where are you so the right next, you know it's yeah. like a social promotion almost and i knew that my kids were almost definitely going to re-enroll in brookline schools right. so i made sure that we were using the common core or the massachusetts state standards um i looked at brookline's curriculum i made sure that whatever they would have covered in fifth grade in school they that we did we covered it um and then we just had so much extra time that we did a lot more um, which is also a great part of it um so how are you gonna replenish your classroom if these students you know of course they want to be in a school environment that makes a lot of sense is this a long-term position for you yeah so next year i'm looking to open actually a bigger micro school um of 15 to 18 kids in grades four through six um and that would be a co-teaching model. I would have another teacher with me um, because I think the thing that's happened and what I've heard from my friends who are parents 
and sometimes parents and educators is that being on Zoom this year really opened their eyes to what was happening in classes um, and how their kids were navigating school. So many of my friends were like, oh, this is not what I thought was happening and my, my kid is struggling and I need to figure out how to support them. So I think there are parents who for several different reasons would want their child enrolled in a school like this. Um, be it academics, like maybe they've fallen behind because Zoom did not work and they need a year to catch up. Or maybe they were in a pod, not my pod, but a different pod and that worked really well for them. Um, or maybe kids are scared to go back to school. I know that I have several friends with children who have expressed that it stresses them out because of the trauma of last year um, to go back to school. And so this would be like a transition back into socializing with others, which sounds really funny, but I think it's a valid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've absolutely. all experienced that in yeah. bigger, small ways, I'm sure, going back out into the world the last few months. I know. It's great. You want me to take my mask off? I know. Right? Yeah. Now, I'm sure you have more experience with this than I do in terms of evaluating people as a former administrator in Massachusetts. But, you know, there was this big overhaul a few years ago, and now there are these educator evaluation rubrics that require our kids to rate us the community to rate us, um, the administrators to pop in for unannounced visits. I feel like my performance reviews really hold weight now and really mean something. And I'm proud of that as a teacher because like you said, there are plenty of naysayers who will be like, <laughs> you know, have plenty of opinions about right, teachers. Like, oh, that school or yeah. Or yeah, absolutely. or oh, being a teacher so easy, you get the summers off all these things. And <laughs> so having that evaluation is really important to me now as a practitioner. Who's evaluating you? So I have a coach from Schoolhouse um, and we meet regularly. Um, she also worked in curriculum and school leadership. Um, and so we mostly just like talk through problems. <laughs> so she's like my, what you would think of as my evaluator. Um, I think that there is a lot more freedom in schoolhouse in general, I think who you're really um, sort of reliant on for that feedback are the parents and the kids. Who you're accountable to in a very like real way. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Like you, I said, oh, you must build really deep relationships with those kids, and I was like, and their parents. <laughs> yeah, and their parents, right? And, and I think that the parents have been really wonderful, but they also want to know, right? They are paying this money and they want to know what is my child doing? How are they doing? How can they be doing better? Um, and so like, not only do you have to give feedback to kids all the time, but then you have to give that feedback to the parents and sort of explain it in more depth. Um, and I do think something that parents take away from it is just a deeper understanding of what school is as opposed to like, oh, you had a spelling test and you got a 97, great job. Right, like assessment uh, after assessment versus right, like, exactly. here's what happens. Right, and I think and, something that was new to my parents was like I, there, there's no reason to give my kids numerical grades or letter grades. So I used a standards-based report card and I think it was the first time my parents had seen that and I know that when districts do shift to standards-based, it can be really confusing for parents. 
but I was in the position where I could explain it to all of them and I could explain exactly what everything meant for each of their children, um, which is what I think the standards-based report card aims to do. And it's just so hard, right? If you have a hundred kids, you can't do that with every, it's not possible to do it with every parent, even if every parent showed up for parent conferences, which like sometimes does not happen. Um, but if you had all of them, you just don't have the time. It's impossible. I remember the year we switched over and all these parents after the first quarter being like, why doesn't my child have a four in this? Like, in what this does standard? that two mean? Right? Why aren't they exemplary? And I was like, we haven't even covered that yet. <laughs> you like, know? We haven't done it, yeah. so they're, they are approaching. <laughs> yeah. But it was really hard, especially for parents who are heavily involved to understand that like my student can't possibly have mastered things that hasn't haven't been covered yet. So, right, right, and parents who have those high standards, which is what we want, um, they, it's just confusing. It's new, and and I don't blame them. <laughs> Does Schoolhouse have any kind of system to engage with like families who? may need like a financial aid or like families who are interested but can't afford it or even engage like outside of that community to like people whose kids may benefit from it but who don't know how to navigate that system like do they is there anything in place through schoolhouse or is that something that like kind of each pod like a pod leader might take on themselves yeah kind of outreach i think every almost if not everybody, but almost everybody who is involved in creating Schoolhouse has worked in ed reform, has worked in urban schools before. So like when I said it was on my mind, it was on everybody's mind. Like, hey, this is expensive and the kids who need it yeah. the most might not have access. Um, what I've discussed with Schoolhouse in the future is figuring out how to provide a seat in the class for a student who can't afford to go, um, which I think is a start, really. If we have surplus budget because we found a space that the rent was cheaper, I can take that budget and I can find a kid who needs or who would benefit from uh, being in that classroom and offer the spot to them. Uh, I obviously have a little bit more bandwidth to find kids like that because I've worked in districts where students have those needs. Um, so I think I can only speak for myself and my pod, but that's sort of the plan for now. And obviously one kid is one kid and the reach needs to be much further to make sure that all of our kids, regardless of whether or not they're in Brookline or Lawrence, that right. they all have access to this choice. Um, but it's a step in that direction. And in terms of finding a location, you know, will you be in the storefront again next year? Do kids provide their own transportation? Oh yeah. I was curious about what the storefront was. Yeah. Like, what did it used what to be? What was yeah. it? <laughs> um, so the, the space we were in this year was right in Brookline village. Um, and it was a maker space that was closed because of the pandemic so we were able to lease it out. Um, our target area for next year is north of Boston, sort of the Somerville, Cambridge, Medford area. Yeah. Um, so the, the location would be different. Um, our aim is to have it, have wherever our location 
is be 15 minutes or less from our families um, because families do have to provide their own transportation. This year in Brooklyn, it was great. My kids all walk to school yeah. most of the time. Um, just a little bit different um, because we're trying to expand how big the school is. We have to pull from different communities. Um, so yeah, it it's a little bit more difficult in the age range. You're not going to have fourth graders who are catching the bus most of the time, like the city bus most of the yeah. time. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you could leave us with uh, a story, like a success story, something that you got a chance to do with your kids this year that the schoolhouse model made possible that you're really proud of. Yeah. So we did my, our last project. Um, I did some project-based learning, which is a luxury for teachers, I think, but it's great. Um, so we did a project where we studied, we started studying climate change and global warming, and we were also doing like proportions and ratios and math. So the kids researched um, how to become more eco-friendly in their communities, in their houses, as as the fifth grader, um, and then they thought of what kind of house they would like to build if they could build any house um, and they built a two-scale model of their dream house and then they outlined how they would make it eco-friendly and how they would budget for it uh, so we had this whole project where they created these amazing models and also made sure that they were having as small of a carbon footprint as possible with their budget um, and then they were able to share out and sort of debate what their choices were and who made the best choices um, and who sort of made not so great choices, but out their choices, yeah, quirkier choices. That's the design cycle, right? You always have to be improving. That's, yeah, that was a that's like that project is right up Sarah's alley. Yeah, system. I've done some similar like, things to scale. Yeah. Right. My students building like hurricane proof houses and then we were out there with a leaf blower. <laughs> Will this work? Oh. You don't think of that though, like, like having a trade off of like, if I have, if I want to like lower my water use, do I need to spend more money on this, this and this? And then am I not going to be able to spend as much to, I don't know, compost or whatever, right? Like, mm -hmm. it, so it is like what, it, what's valuable to you. It's, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Cross-curricular, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, they loved it, and their models were awesome, and their ideas were awesome. Like, that was part of just the whole year that was so different for me was that they would come up with these ideas, and then we were able to really pursue them and dig in deep with them. Uh, like, they wanted to produce their own newscast, and we were able to do it because wow. – we had the time um, yeah, right. to start a business and we were able to do it because we had the time. Um, and then they just had so much fun with it and mm -hmm. they did not think of it as learning, right? They thought of it as this is really fun. I get to hang out with my friends and I get to do these cool things. And yeah, I guess I learned some math along the way. <laughs> I used to think that about, um, I've like taught summer school most summers for the past like few years. And it, you know, it's that like, it's four weeks four days a week for like three hours a day. And there's no, obviously there's no like transition times because you're just there for the three hours, right? So they're not worrying, they're not going to recess or lunch or any of that stuff. Um, but I just remember thinking like being 
in there for like it was you know for those three hours with like six to ten kids depending on the day right and thinking of how like luxurious and relaxed the whole thing was and I would just be like let's do this for however long right and it just felt I was like I would go to school I was like I would go to work all summer if we could come here for like three or four hours a day and just like totally relaxed like I was like I would teach for I would teach a much longer school year if we could cut down on like the time of the day they just just chill out like it was so nice they just talked me into doing summer school this summer and I was not thinking it would be luxurious it is she they should have had her sell it it to me yeah but I always thought that I'd be like you know well and you know it depends on what kids are there yeah what their needs are but like I always just felt like because I, you know, we just had that time to do in like even stuff like that where we would do that, like, you know, make a boat out of foil and see like, just like that kind of thing. If you build relationships too, you save a lot of time on discipline and things like that. So yeah. And you just don't feel so rushed, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's not, oh, it's 940 and literacy needs to be over so we can move on right. to science. It's like, well, today it's 940 and we're really into this book and yeah. we're going to keep going for a half an hour Finish what we're and doing. we'll figure it out tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do think that that starting and stopping can be tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I really hope that um, you can find a way to grow this model and make it accessible to all different kinds of students um all over the country it yeah. seems like you got big things ahead of you <laughs> yeah so um, maybe we'll show up in public schools in some shape or form yeah. um do you ever come back to worcester um i have not been back to worcester <laughs> since well i guess i was there a couple of years. i played hockey at holy cross so i oh, do cool. make appearances for the alumni games occasionally i'm very excited to come see the Woo Sox. i was gonna yeah. say come see some baseball yeah, yeah i'm funny. super excited to see the stadium which like nine dollars yeah it's <laughs> awesome i had a blast i went my two-year-old is like obsessed really with baseball now like i don't even know how you know what baseball is <laughs> That's the thing about minor league stadiums too. It's like not built so much to sit down and watch nine innings as it is like all these areas where you can go do different activities and try different food. So come on by. (laughs) I will. I I love Worcester. I love Holy Cross. Um, Yeah. Someone, when we were setting up this interview, someone called it a suburb of Boston. And I was like, oh no. (laughs) We are the second largest city in New England. (laughs) I know that's what I thought because I remember that from my tour at Holy Cross. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we love to, like, push that. We're like, listen, we're pretty good, Springfield. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to talk to us. I know Mondays are tough, so. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, this is great. It was so much fun. Awesome. Go ahead. Please keep us in the loop, too, if yeah. you've got any cool things coming up. Yeah, I will. All right. That was we'll me who called it a suburb of Boston. I'm a New Yorker. Oh, it was you. <laughs> I figured it was someone from New York. I was like, yeah.